few years ago, a man named Gene Smith wrote a book entitled When the Cheering Stopped. In this book about Woodrow Wilson, he noted that in all of Europe there was not a president more loved than Mr. Wilson. Viva Wilson was the shout of the crowd as his horse-drawn carriage passed through the Arch de Triomphe and started down the, tr down the street. Ahead of him marched the honor guard of France with their spears on their shoulders and their plumes dancing. It seemed that the cheering would never stop. Viva Wilson, Viva Wilson, screamed the crowd to the man standing in the center of the chariot or the carriage with his high hat outstretched. A great sign blazed, Welcome, Mr. Wilson. And from the windows above, they tossed down on his head roses and violets and holly. A great army bands beat their drums and sounded their bugles, and the people screamed themselves hoarse and tossed their hats in the air. One reporter said, Nobody received the cheers of Mr. Wilson. I heard them in the street, and the Cheers were so deafening, I thought the arch would tumble. I was there when Lord George passed, but I've never seen anything like this. The Premier of France said that this was the greatest day in the history of the world. When he went to England, it was the same. They greeted him there as the God of peace. When he went to Italy, it was the same. As a matter of fact, they said in Italy that he received a greater welcome than the conquering Caesars, and they said, we thought righteousness and justice had disappeared from the earth. Then Mr. Wilson came, and it was back to Paris where they said of him, Woodrow Wilson will bring to the earth the peace and goodwill about which the angels sang in Bethlehem. And then the cheering stopped. His great dreams of peace began to fade and the clouds of war began to, to gather again. And the people forgot him. And one day sitting on the back porch of the White House, a beaten, forgotten, sick man, Mr. Wilson, made this statement. I'd rather fail in a cause that would one day triumph than to triumph in a cause that will one day fail. The cheering has a way of stopping, doesn't it? The crowds are fickle with their cheers. Today's heroes have a way of becoming tomorrow's forgotten. Don Meredith, the great quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, retired at the zenith of his career. And he said over and over again, that when the cheering stopped, he did. When the cheering of the crowd turned to booze, he couldn't stand it any longer, so he quit. It's not hard to get a crowd. It's hard to get a commitment. It's not hard to win the adoration of the multitudes, but it is only a vital commitment that will sustain one when the cheering stops. Does this book about Mr. Wilson remind you of that day 
And what happened in Jerusalem? Jesus had only a few followers about him, a few peasants. But they got a donkey, the lowest beast of burden, and they started a processional into the city of Jerusalem. There were no bands to play, and there were no bugles sounding. Only the shouts of these followers, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. And the visitors who were in the city of Jerusalem, Josephus said, there may have been as many as two and a half million of them for the feast of the Passover. A few here and a few there began to join the processional. And they got palm branches and laid them in the path. And they took off their cloaks and spread them in the streets. And they shouted, Hosanna! until the Pharisees were incensed. And they said to Jesus, You make your friends be quiet. And Jesus said, If I do, these stones will cry out unto me. Then the cheering stopped. And the multitude that shouted, Hosanna, five days later were shouting, Crucify him away with him. And they plucked their palm branches and hailed him as king early on Sunday. They spread out their garments, Hosanna, they sing, early on Sunday. But where is the sound of their hurrying feet, the throne they would offer, the scepter, the seat? Their king wanders hungry, forgotten in the street early on Monday. And the cheering stopped. Why did the cheering stop? Why does it stop now? It seems that he's not as popular as he was then, doesn't it? Why did the cheering stop? Why then? Why now? They, un they misunderstood him. When Jesus talked about victory, they thought he meant military victory, and they cheered him but he was talking about triumphant living. And he said, if you overcome, I'll give you the crown. When he talked about enlarged borders and new destiny, they thought he meant new territory and new conquest. And so they cheered him. But he was really talking about breaking down the barriers between man and man. When he spoke of liberty, they fought a political freedom. He was really talking about the freedom of the Spirit and said, you will know the truth and the truth shall make you free. When he talked about possession, when he talked about riches, they thought he meant possessions and they cheered him. But he was really talking about the riches of the heart. When he talked about the abundant life, they thought he meant a change in circumstances and they cheered him for that but he was really talking about the vitality of the Spirit. And he said, man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. When he talked about strength and power, they thought he meant armed forces and military might, but he was really talking about the power of faith and said, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall receive power. So the cheering stopped. Why the cheering stopped? Why then? Why now? Three reasons. First, because Jesus always demands a decision. 
Now up until now, Jesus had been relatively quiet about his claims of messiahship. He'd only shared that with a few close friends and he told them often to tell nobody about it. But now it was time for him to assume the role spoken by the prophets. It was as Zechariah had said, Blessed, rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Rejoice, Jerusalem, for your king comes to you riding on a donkey, and he brings justice and faith and salvation. The claims of Jesus were clearly being drawn, and indecision was no longer possible. Jesus was bringing matters to a head. As long as he can be called the greatest man who ever lived, the doer of good deeds, it's easy to cheer. But when the lines are clearly drawn and a person must decide, is he really the Son of God? Is he really the King? Is he really my Lord? Then the cheering stops. I tell you, listen to me, I know why the cheering stops. Because we reject his lordship and he demands that kind of decision. Occasionally, some people will come to church and they will silently cheer the sermon and the choir and the preacher but when you bring them to some decision concerning the lordship of Christ and their commitment to him, that's a different matter. When I lived in West Texas, the staid, conservative, sophisticated First Baptist Church Plainview had a revival. It was kind of a youth-led type revival. They brought in someone flashy evangelist and he had a great following of young people and one night right in the middle of the service now it was packed out and nothing like this had ever happened before but one of those young people jumped up and said give me a J and there was a J thundered across the auditorium one lady had a stroke the deacons passed out but they went on, give me a E, and somebody said E, and it went right on down to the end, and the leader said, what does that spell? And they thundered, Jesus, and broke out in applause. Now the pastor the next day was in a little bit of a jam. He told me, he said, my phone rang constantly, just one right after another, and he said, that was enough problem for me. But he said, you know what was worse? A couple of weeks later, when I went to these young people who were shouting J-E-S-U-S and thundering their applause for Jesus, and I asked them for a vital commitment to him that would lead them out into the, to the school and the university there in Plainview, bearing witness of Jesus Christ living the discipline of discipleship, when I pressed that decision to them, I found none.
this. Jesus is a king who must be crowned. Now you may say this is dogmatism, maybe so, but until Jesus is everything, he's not anything. And and I believe and I think there are those who will confess this in their heart that Jesus has to be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. The cheering stops when he demands that kind of decision. Secondly, the cheering stops because he designated the supremacy of his kingdom he designated the supremacy of love. You've got to see the context to understand that. Now Jesus came as a different kind of king than they thought. They wanted a king, but not this kind. And they wanted a kingdom, but not this kind. He did not choose to come riding on a white stallion. He came on a donkey. And he did not choose to wear the robe of a worldly king. And he did not come with great signs emblazoned power. He came in biblical humility. He was a pauper king. His donkey was borrowed. His throne was draped with the ragged robes of a few peasant fishermen. His attendants were not soldiers carrying spears. They were peasants carrying palms. And there were no bugles sounding, only the shouts of Hosanna. And they weren't ready for that. Are you? Everything about this triumphal entry of Jesus suggests that he believed that gentleness and mercy and love are mighty and that violence and force are feeble. And he chose to take the risk of love even though it meant a cross. And he was declaring that he was a king who would rule a kingdom of meekness and he would rule in the omnipotence of love. And they weren't ready for that kind. Are you? I'm not sure that you and I really believe that there is power in divine love. I'm not sure that you and I really believe that the way of meekness shall inherit the earth. I'm not sure that you and I really believe that God's way is a way of suffering and servanthood, not by the way we act. I don't know whether we really believe that there is any manhood in turning the other cheek and walking the second mile. I'm not sure that we're ready for a king who will bow down and wash feet. For to us, power is in force. Get what you want in self-assertion, even if it means violence. And to us, power is in wealth, not in poverty, not like this. I ask you, are you ready for this kind of exposure? 
Must I ask this? Yes, I must. Are you willing for him to be king? He who says, turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Love your enemies. Pray for them who despitefully use you. And give up all that you have for the poor. No wonder the cheering stopped. What kind of a king is that? Finally, the cheering stopped because he disturbed the status quo. He disturbed their accepted way of life. Now to say that Jesus believed in gentleness and meekness is not to is not to ignore the authority he asserted. What a dramatic event. Goliath, David standing before Goliath. An itinerant preacher standing before entrenched religion. A prophet going after the priest. A peasant standing against organized religion. What a man. And he was angry. He was mad. He was, he was upset. And that gives us some kind of an index into his character. He was right who said that if you know what makes a man mad, you'll know a lot about the man. And one day it just stepped out of this page at me that Jesus never got angry when they mistreated him. Not when they spat on him, not when they plucked his beard, not when they lied about him, not when they brought false accusation against him, not even when they crucified him did he ever get angry. But what made him angry was what they did to others. The thing that angered him was that people, women and children and Gentiles, would be exploited and used. And so he upset the money changers' table and drove them out of the temple for Jesus stands against that which will exploit and use one created in the image of God. How do you feel about those, those exploited and abused and needy of the world? And not only did he upset the money changers, but he strode right into organized religion and he challenged that which kept the unclean Gentile out of the presence of God. For what happened in the cleansing of the temple after the triumphal entry happened in the court of the Gentiles. Remember that. And you know how the temple was structured. And the court of the Gentiles was that structure on the outside of the holy place. The Gentiles couldn't dare go into the holy place, not where God was. And Jesus challenged that kind of bigotry and exclusivism, that kind of narrowness, that holds men out from the presence of God. Now, I don't imagine this morning there are any of us here with that kind of bigotry, exclusive to the point that we won't allow those into the presence of God who are not like our kind. We may not be that exclusive, but I ask you, do you have that in you and in your Christianity that attracts that kind into the presence of God? You may not hold them out, but do you urge them in? I don't know which is worse, do you? 
And not only that, but he challenged that, na- that shallow profession, that hip- hypocritical profession of the Pharisees with a demand for radical obedience for what Jesus wanted was not profession with the lips. He wanted radical obedience with the life. And how it must have upset the Pharisees when he told them that parable of the father who asked his son to go into the work in the vineyard and the son said, no, I won't go, and later repented and went. And then he told about the sons who said, yes, we'll go work in the vineyard, but they never did, the Pharisees. And the application, listen to it, the application, Pharisees, that the publicans and the harlots and the sinners will go into the kingdom of God before you, not because they're publicans and harlots, but because they repented and went. For we're not to be hearers of the word, but doers. And what God demands of man is not lip profession, but life action. And so he challenged their status quo by demanding radical obedience. And so the cheering stopped. And so it does today. And when the cheering stopped, they took him outside the city of Jerusalem. And they put him on a tree. And they crucified him. And they sat down. No longer cheering and watched him die. And when the cheering stopped and when he died, he set free into this world a power of love and and redemption that no man can stop. Perhaps the greatest love poetry ever written was written by Elizabeth and Barrett and and What's his name? Elizabeth? Robert. Boy, I'm glad I've got some help. If y'all had all gone to sleep on me, I wouldn't get this last, last illustration, and it's the zoomer. Perhaps the greatest love poetry ever written by Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And one day she had at the table, she was sick, she was dying at the time, was Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And she had at the table a collection of poetry she had just written at random. And she kind of nervously shoved them over to the table, to the plate, Robert Browning said, look through those, and if you find any you like, keep them, publish them. If you don't like them, throw them away. Some of those poems have become, one of them has become sonnet to the Portuguese woman. And in that poem it says, The face of the world has changed for me ever since I heard the footsteps of your soul. That's how I feel about Jesus today. The face of the world has changed ever since he put his feet on Jerusalem. And the cheering stopped. But one day it's going to begin again. And he's coming in glory, in great glory. And on his thigh and vesture will be written in blood, 
king of kings and lord of lords. And the cheering will begin. And the scripture says that every knee shall bow and every tongue, that's every tongue, even those who crucified him and every tongue shall confess him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the cheering will never stop. Would you bow your head with me? Jesus demands a decision. He demands a public decision. And his day of decision is today. Jesus invites you not to cheer him, but to obey him. And his day is today. So out of your pew and into the aisle you come, not cheering him, but obeying him. You'll need to come confessing him as your Savior and Lord. He's decision, he demands that. Am I really Savior? Am I really Lord? You'll need to come putting your life in this church. You'll need to come for rededication. Perhaps you've been saved in secrecy. You'll need to come publicly. The line of decision is drawn, and Jesus demands obedience.